everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Thanks for coming back this week. we got some great info for you, as usual. Uh, and a little bit later, we'll be talking with uh, John Graham Cumming, who is the CTO of Cloudflare. And uh, he's got some great information for us. We're going to talk about the Internet of Things. And if you don't know what that is, don't worry. We'll explain it all to you. And trust me, it's actually something you need to hear about. It's something that's all around right now, and it's just going to be more prevalent uh, you'll be surprised to find out how much it already affects you. So be sure to listen to that. And uh, before we do that, though, let's uh, let's talk a little bit of uh, security news for the week. So if you use the password manager one login, uh, you need to listen up. You've probably already been contacted because one login had a massive security breach uh, that they are assuming at this point could mean that all the stored passwords and all the stored security notes could actually have been compromised, which is obviously really bad. Um, now I, I actually hadn't heard of one login. Uh, I think it's mainly used for, uh, for businesses. Uh, that is that it's used as a single sign on cloud-based, in other words, internet-based utility where uh, people can sign in once. And then, uh, for some period of time, they're automatically logged into all the similar sites like within their company. Um, so my understanding is what happened. It's still kind of unfolding and they're being a little, uh, a little close to the vest about exactly what has happened. Uh, but last Thursday, uh, they reported this breach, and for some amount of time, I think it was just really just a few hours, uh, somebody managed to have uh, access to things they should not have access to. Uh, they, uh, This company used uh, Amazon's web services, which are not to blame here, uh, but they were not protecting that information properly. And somebody managed to get in and get access to their stuff. Now, the real issue here, and the, and and since I don't know too much yet about uh, what is actually going on with the with the breach, if you're a one login customer, they they have already contacted you and your uh, IT folks, and they should already be taking actions. I'm surprised. I'll be shocked if you haven't heard. But if you haven't, I guess you could reach out to your IT guys and make sure that they're aware. But what really happened here, and, and from what I can tell so far, the the real issue. And, and why people are saying, you know, should I even be using password managers because of this? Or should I, you know, be using password managers that don't store my information in the cloud and something that I have to carry around with me on a little flash drive or, or something like that? And that's really what I want to talk to you about, you to talk to you about today. From my understanding, what happened was is, is that for these customers, the one login service basically said, yes, we're, we'll keep all your your treasure trove of secret secret information and password databases and things like that on our servers. And we will maintain the key to that so that if you ever lose the key or if you need it, you need us to decrypt it for you, we can do that. And that is really where things fall down. So if you're going to, especially for a business, but even as a human uh, with a lot of passwords, you want to be the maintainer of that key. You want to have full control over the encrypted data so that they cannot decrypt it for you. Uh, because if they can decrypt it for you, then anybody who hacks their system can also decrypt it. And that is, that is pardon the pun, uh, that's the key. So LastPass, which is the, the, the password manager that I often recommend, but most of the other managers as well, will have an option for you to maintain the encryption key for your password vault, your password safe, whatever whatever they call it with that system, so that when you encrypt your information, it's all encrypted locally on your machine, and before it's ever before it ever leaves your machine to be stored up in the cloud, 
up in the internet so that you can synchronize that across multiple machines, it's already encrypted. And not only is it encrypted, but it's encrypted with a key that the service provider, the, the, the password manager service provider you're using, does not have that key, and that's crucial. So if you have whatever password manager system you're using, and you should be using something because you need unique, strong passwords for all of your websites, and there's just no way that a human being can do that, really. So the only way you could possibly hope to do that is to have a password manager that generates crazy, long, complicated keys and remembers them all for you so that you don't have to. Um, so you have you should be using a password manager, but when you do, make sure that you review the service and when there's an option for, you know, do you want, I don't know how each one, each of these services would, would phrase this, but if there's an option for you to maintain the key to your own password database, you absolutely should do that and write that key somewhere down special. Um, and that way you are in full control of these keys and the, the key, the way to figure out if they're doing it right is go to their help center, go to their support people and say, hey, I've lost my key. Can you help me decrypt my stuff? If they say yes, then they have a copy of the key. And that's and that's not what you want. So I realize that this is kind of scary and that you're, but this puts all the responsibility on you and that's where it should be. So uh, if you have the opportunity to, to use your own key and any password manager service worth its salt will give you that option, you should take that option. I have actually reached out to uh, to LastPass uh, security support directly, and I'm trying to get some answers from them in particular on how they handle this. And I hopefully will have a discussion with them in the future. And if I'm lucky, I'll get one of those folks on here for an interview, and we can break it all down for you and help you understand, you know, why it's okay to to put your clouds up, or to put your information up in the cloud. I know it's scary. It's putting all your ed- eggs in one digital basket. I get it. I, it, you know, it worries me too because just. You know, you are putting all you're putting your faith in something, but uh, I'm going to try to uh, see if I can get an interview with one of those folks. Bring them on, and we'll help you uh, feel feel better about doing that. All right, the next thing I want to talk about this week, uh, in terms of cybersecurity, is we've talked a lot uh, about phishing uh, on this program, uh, which is to say, someone sending you uh, an email uh, that has a link in it. Uh, maybe that email is actually from somebody that you know because they were compromised and a hacker was able to send an email on their behalf, or perhaps somebody that you know that they know were hacked and they were able to send an email spoofed to look like it was coming from somebody that you know. Uh, you can't trust any, you can't trust the sender of any email. Unfortunately, it's too easy that the system really wasn't built. Uh, and the system that most of us use is not built to authenticate those people. So just because it says it's from your mother or from your sister or your best friend doesn't really mean that's where it came from. That's why you've got to always be vigilant about uh, getting emails and clicking on any links. If you did not request that link specifically and you are absolutely sure of, of the origin of that email, you should not click on any links. Generally speaking, you should try just to avoid it anyway. Either go and manually enter it, enter, enter the link, or go to the website and try to find the, uh, the thing that was pointed to yourself by searching. Um, unfortunately, links and emails are just really really hard to trust, but we've all been, uh, told over and over now uh, by me and others, uh, you've been told that you should not be clicking on those links. And and the bad guys are finally realizing that people are taking that to heart, which is to say that they're less likely to start clicking on those links. So now they got to find some other way to get that link in front of you and get you to click on something that you're not supposed to click on. And what they've been turning to is social media. Social media kind of holds a special place in all of our all of our hearts because 
well, we're obsessed with it and people use it all the time. And you kind of feel like you're in the, you know, your circle of friends when you're talking about this stuff and you somehow inherently trust it more than you do email. And the hackers have figured this out. So there's actually a New York Times article on this that I'm going to, I'll, I'll include a link to in the show notes. And I'm going to read some parts of it here just because they, 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 they say it so well. Um, but what this really is talking about in this sense is, is what they call spear phishing. Um, and spear phishing, and again, that's P-H-I-S-I-N-G, uh, is specifically targeting someone uh, with information that would make that particular person want to click on a, on a link that would get them infected. Uh, whereas just kind of regular phishing is, is, is sort of a catch-all where, I, you know, if I, I, I buy a list of a million email addresses from the dark web and I just send out a general email that looks like, hey, you've just won a prize, click here to get more info or whatever, uh, whatever I can come up with that would make you click on that link. And I just send it to a whole ton of people and hope that some of them click on it. And by the way, a lot of people do still. Um, but because people are getting better about not trusting those emails and not clicking those links, they're moving to other places that include social media. So let me read, I'm just going to read a, a few key quotes from this article, if you don't mind. And, and then you can go read the whole article yourself if you'd like. So, quoting from the New York Times, a report in Time magazine this month revealed that Russian-led cyber attack tried to spearfish 10,000 Twitter accounts belonging to the Department of Defense employees using personal messages targeted at specific users. So, again, what the, what they did is they the Russian hackers in this case were using Twitter um, to target people specifically within the Department of Defense, and they were using information they found on Twitter to try to tailor those inf that uh, those spear phishing attacks at particular people to get them to click on something. All right, let me, let me continue reading here. According to a 2016 report by Verizon, roughly 30% of spear phishing emails are opened by their targets, but research published by cybersecurity firm ZeroFox showed that 66% of spear phishing messages sent through social media sites were opened by their intended victims. Sim simply by looking at public posts, attackers can easily see if an, if an account was mentioned, uh, has mentioned a certain band or sports team often, then tailor, uh, sorry, mentioned a certain band or sports team often, then tailor a message pointing to tickets going on sale for an event. On Facebook, an attacker can see which groups have been joined or which public pages have been, have been liked. So let me stop there. So basically what I'm saying is because we overshare, because we uh, on Facebook and on Twitter, we put so much out there about ourselves, it becomes obvious what our interests are and, and, and people we know and things we maybe where we work or where we live. So that means that if somebody decides they want to target you specifically and you might be working for a company that they want to get into their systems because they, they want to hack in and steal your company's secrets. Or if you work for, you know, some sort of a military agency or Department of Defense or some sort of other other high value target, they're looking at people that work at those places and they can figure that out by looking at your social media posts. And then they can start targeting you uh, to try to get you to give up information and finally click on that link that will infect your system. And once your system is infected, now they're inside. Um, as we say in the cybersecurity world, there's this big crunchy exterior and a soft gooey interior. <laughs> We're going to talk about that in a minute with our guest. But once they kind of break through that out part at the outside, once they finally make their way in they, and they get one person inside, it's much easier to get around and po uh, to spread uh, infections and get into other computers once you're inside. So returning to the article. In an experiment last year, Zero Fox created an automated program that taught itself to send spear phishing links to Twitter users. Over two hours, the program set eight, sent a link to 819 people at a rate of roughly 6.75 messages per minute. 
275 users opened the link. So if you're doing the math, that's, I think, what, a third of them? That's a pretty high percentage. So, uh, Mr. Uh, again, quoting Mr. Blair said that in the case of the Defense Department, the links had carried the mal- the links had carried the malware. Once people clicked on the link, they were infecting their computers, their computer networks. In many cases, the attackers targeted members of the Department of Defense employees' families, who were less likely to be suspicious. The Defense Department employee who told the Times that he had been part of the recent breach said he had been targeted through his wife's Twitter account. She was the one to click on the link to a vacation package after exchanging messages with friends over what they should do with their children over the summer. And once the hackers got into her computer, the official said, they got to his computer through a shared home network. So again, the the moral of the story here, folks, is that we we share often too much on social media, and and it was just a matter of time. It's already been done, but it's just a matter of time before those things come up to haunt you. So how much information have you posted on your social media that would be valuable for a hacker? Um, let's say they're trying to get into your bank account and, and they were able to hack into your email and they need to reset your password. Well, you know, unfortunately it's still common that we have those security questions, right? And the security questions were, you know, what is your high school mascot? What's your mother's maiden name? What was your, who's the first person you took to your prom? What was the make and model of your first car? And if you're one of those people that is constantly on Facebook, what are the odds that you've already shared that information at some point in your history on social media? Um, they can find the answers to those questions and they can, they can reset your password and now they've got your account. Uh, and now we're seeing what the, what we're seeing with these accounts is would you just share enough about what, what your interests are, where you live, about your family, uh, that if you or your spouse or, uh, someone, you know, uh, may be a target, uh, then they can target you and, and try to get in through your account or any of your accounts to, to gain access to one computer. And once they've got that foothold, they can spread from there. So go to your social media accounts, lock them down, make sure that the only people seeing what you're posting are truly, uh, the people that need to see them. Uh, unfortunately, I don't think that in a lot of cases you can delete things that are already there, but hopefully you can at least lock down who can see them. And in the future, just be careful what you share. And be aware that the hackers are now onto this and they are trying to get you to click on links that they're sending to you via social media. And it, and it may look like it comes from somebody you know, so you just have to be very careful. You should always be careful of what you're clicking on. Never assume that who sent it is the right, is actually who sent it. Um, so anyway, that's my little tip for the week uh, based on that little news story. All right, now I want to circle back a little bit to something I told you about a couple weeks ago, and that was uh, domain names. Uh, if you've got a business and you've got a website, then you know exactly what I'm talking about. Or if you're thinking about it, then you should know about this. Uh, you've got to go get your domain name, which is, you know, mycoolsite.com or mycoolcharity.org or whatever the case may be. When you register your domain name, you you have to give information according to the ICANN International... Oh, <laughs> I don't know what it stands for. ICANN is the, 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 the body that governs the internet stuff. And uh, you have to give contact information so that somebody knows how to find you. But the problem is when you do that, the people that find you are spammers and people that want to sell you a bunch of stuff. So you can buy privacy at most sites and my, my old registrar is no exception, but that's another seven or 10 bucks on top of the price you're already paying. Uh, Hover just includes that. It's all built in. Don't have to pay anything extra for that. They believe that everyone deserves their privacy. So I went with Hover and I transferred three domains in 10 minutes and it actually took effect within a half hour. It just, just amazing. And it, if you are looking to do the same thing, if you've got some domain names that you'd like to switch to hover, they're having a great sale this month. All you got to do is go to hover.com slash transfer my domain. 
Uh, put in your put in the domain that you'd like to transfer, and they will get you all set up. It just could not be easier, and you'll get forty percent off. And you may be asking, okay, well, you know, the the sale is in June, but my my registrar currently has, you know, uh, I bought time all the way through December or whatever. You know, my my actually website doesn't expire and need renewal until December. Not a problem. The the transfer itself is free. Uh, you will still write out the rest of your time uh, on your existing uh, one year registration. And then when that's up, you'll, then you'll get 40% off the next year. So it just couldn't be simpler. Great price, great time to do it. So again, hover.com slash transfer my domain. You're listening to the America Out Loud Talk Radio Network. It's where we say, let the silent voices be heard. We invite you back to AmericaOutloud.com to get all the latest. Make it a daily stop and also get the app. You go right to the App Store and download our free app, and that will put all our content right into your hands on your phones and your tablets. It doesn't get any easier than that. All right, everybody, and as promised, we are here with John Graham Cumming, who is the Chief Technical Officer of Cloudflare. Uh, welcome, John. Thank you very much for coming. Oh, it's great. I'm very happy to chat with you. And today we're going to be talking about the Internet of Things and what that means to you, and, and you'll be surprised to realize how much actually it already affects you, um, and talk a little bit about the security aspects and where we're going and things like that. But before I do, I just wanted to make a quick shout-out. Uh, John, uh, uh, please tell us about your role uh, with the... Um, the apology for Alan Turing and tell us a little bit about who Alan Turing was and, and what your role in the role role was in that. Oh, sure. Yeah. So Alan Turing, uh, to computer scientists is a very, very famous name. And actually to some mathematicians, he was a mathematician who was very active in, um, code breaking in the second world war. And also in the 1930s, he wrote a very famous paper with a very difficult to say name, which <laughs> basically laid down the foundations of computer science. And um, he then in the Second World War worked at a place called Bletchley Park in the UK, breaking Nazi codes, and after the war worked on early computers and artificial intelligence. He was also homosexual at a time when that was illegal in the UK mm. and was arrested and essentially forced to, to have a sort of hormone therapy and eventually killed himself. Mm. And... In 2009, I had come back to the UK after many years working abroad, and I, for some reason, got mad about this whole story again, <laughs> and decided to ask the UK government if they would apologize to Turing and actually all the other people who were uh, affected by that law, because many of them were still living. They yeah. had criminal records mm. for a thing that had been decriminalized. And so that was in 2009, and much to my disbelief, that actually worked. <laughs> Well, that was fantastic, and I just really I wanted to make sure our listeners was aware, were aware of that. I wasn't aware of that until I started doing the, the research for the for the interview, and I just thought I had to I had to bring that out and let people know that that's one of the things that you are well known for. And so, thank you for uh, catching us up on that. Okay, so let's dive into the Internet of Things. So, you know, I, I I'm saying that I can already kind of see my, the audience you know glazing over a little bit, like, oh God, what 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 is that? Uh, but it's actually I think something that 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 most of us have know about and have heard about it, just not really maybe familiar with the term. So why don't you help us out, explain what the Internet of Things is and kind of relate that to, to what people may already know about today. Well, yeah, the Internet of Things sounds quite complicated, but it is nothing more than taking everyday objects and attaching computers to them. So, you know, you could imagine the example I always give is 
a toilet roll holder in your bathroom <laughs> that when you get low on toilet rolls, it sends you a text message and says, hey, I need refilling. Um, so that's the sort of level. We're attaching computers to absolutely everything under the sun. Uh, one of the big ones that I remember was the Nest thermostat. That was one of the big kind of popular, or, you know, webcams were kind of around for a while, but I think it was kind of the Nest thermostat that first kind of, you know, introduced me to the concept, okay, you're taking a truly mundane everyday thing, hook it up to the internet and put a little computer chip in it. And all of a sudden, all sorts of these amazing things can now happen. I can, I can see what the temperature of my house is from anywhere on the planet. I can change the temperature of my house from anywhere on the planet. I can maybe, oh, I forgot to, you know, turn it into, you know, turn the AC up when I was away for a week. So I'll save some money or, you know, I'm just coming home from a long trip. I'm going to make sure the house is nice and toasty on a winter morning, whatever the case may be. Uh, that was for me, that was the, that kind of brought home the concept of the internet of things. Yeah, I mean, I have some Internet of Things at home. I have some lights that are controllable across the Internet. So you can sort of turn the lights on at home if you're going to come back late so it looks like your house is occupied and mm -hmm. you can adjust the color of them and things like that. But in general, it's just taking everyday objects. For example, quite popular, it seems, is toasters with Internet <laughs> connectivity. Tell me, tell me about that. Well, you know, you can... You can set the, how much you want the toast done, you know, how brown you want it on an app on your phone. I'm not sure why that's actually good, but <laughs> right. that's the sort of thing people are attaching. Other things like washing machines that will send you a message when they're done. Maybe you forget. I mean, I don't find that too hard to mm. remember. But, you know, I, it really is attach a computer to pretty much anything you can imagine. Uh, the Amazon Dash buttons are actually a very interesting application to that as well. Um, the, the little – you can buy these little $5 – mountable buttons where, you know, that are product specific so that, you know, if you're running out of toilet paper, you stick this in the bathroom, you push it and then it automatically just orders more toilet paper or you put it uh, in your washroom and when you're, and you run out of uh, detergent and you push the button and it automatically sends more. There really are just that I think we're really just getting started with this. Do you, do you happen to know, do you see uh, where this might be going? What, are, what are, like the next wave of IOT might look like? Is it, what are, what, what, what kind of great things are to come with this technology? Well, you know, the Amazon Dash buttons are an interesting example because they are, at first glance, you can sort of laugh at them and say, well, that's completely ridiculous because it's literally a button with one purpose, like order this particular brand of diapers or, or you know, and you have to have multiple of them, right? They, they can't do more than one. It's not like an app. Um, but they actually are a precursor for something, which is if you think about computers just disappearing into everything, then quite sophisticated computer technology, which, you know, a computer scientist would like, wow, that's amazing. There's a computer in there becomes just a button to someone. I just click that button and it does a thing that I want. And I think that's really where we're going to go. We're going to see things disappear completely. You won't think about uh, buttons at all. I give an example about this, which is in 1918, the Sears in the US and the Sears catalog, mm -hmm. they sold an electric motor you could buy. Because an electric motor was an expensive thing. And you could attach all sorts of things to it, a fan, a blender, mm. a buffing tool, things like this. You don't buy motors anymore. And in fact, your house is full of motors. You just never think about electric motors, right? Right. And same thing is kind of happening with computers. Today, you buy like an expensive laptop, and the things you attach to it are software. You buy bits of software. But if you just spread computers everywhere, then you can use them for a single purpose. Okay, this one orders diapers. This one tells me when the toast is done. Etc. So what we're going to see is the same kind of disappearance of electric motors as, and, and we'll see the same thing with computers disappearing into the walls, into everything around us. Exactly. Exactly. That, uh, and so now that's the, that's the fun side. That's the upside. That's the great, the, the good part. Now we'll look at the bad part and we'll get to the ugly. So 
why is IoT, the Internet of Things, IoT, uh, why, is, why is the security so bad? And, before, and I'll preface this with a phrase I love, which is the S in IoT stands for security. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. I like that as well. Um, why is it so bad? Uh, well, I, I think the, the, the real answer to that is if you think about computers um, like your phone or your computer at home, You've probably got used to doing software updates on it, maybe having antivirus software on it. And those are things you're aware that you should do, if you're aware at all, right? I mean, some people aren't. Mm. With Internet of Things, when you attach a computer to something, you are bringing all the problems computers have to that thing. So if you make a smart toaster, you then need to do software updates on your toaster because if someone finds a vulnerability, your toaster might participate in some bad activity. And we've seen that with Internet of Things cameras doing DDoS attacks. So I think the real thing that's worrying about Internet of Things is just that you've got loads more computers you've got to worry about. And because manufacturers are trying to do something which is hidden, it's not like a computer is going to pop up and say, hey, I I got a software update for you. Somehow... They've got to take responsibility for the security of it in a way that isn't the case with a laptop or something where you are used to updating and even have visibility that you need to do it. So, I mean, I think we're, we're at the beginning of a world in which people start to think about the security of these devices and ask manufacturers, you know, what are you doing about updates? What are you doing about the security of them? Exactly. So, yeah, so these are basically, they're not only cheap computers, because we've had, we've had little computer chips and everything for a long time. So, you know, we actually probably already had toasters with microchips in them. But the, the, the next step, of course, is that now we're taking these computers and now they're Internet-connected computers, you know, which, of course, as we've said, allows us for all sorts of really interesting applications. But, the, you know, and I, I'm sure part of the, the, the notion is that they want these things to be cheap and they need these things to be cheap because for these things to, to sell, they've, they've got to keep their cost of goods down. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems like, you know, the, the, the first corner that's cut is security. And not only can't you get updates, but the, in a lot of cases, the, the security that's built in is, is pretty horrid. Um, some of these things have, uh, if you're familiar with computers at all, and I don't want to get too technical, but it, a lot of computers, especially uh, these uh, little chips, are Linux-based or, or Unix-based. And they have all these ports that are open for common services like Telnet and things like that. And again, I know that's extremely technical for the, for the audience. But basically what these are, these little these are little services that run on these systems that normally are not exposed. But if you're, if you're just slapping something together and throwing a chip on it, these, ser- these services are often exposed. And that, of course, leaves you vulnerable to hackers. Yeah, that's right. I mean, again, it's like a computer. If you had all the ports open, you didn't have a firewall protecting it, people would attack the computer, and they, and they do. And for these embedded, what we call embedded devices, i.e. computers hidden inside something, if you haven't done the work to secure them, then you know there are people out there who are going to look for those devices. And there are even special search engines just for doing this, find me devices yes. of this type, that you can then go off and, and go off and attack them. So it's it's, it's, it's a rich field of easy pickings at the moment um, as we sort out the, you know, the security of these devices. So let's, let's bring it home. I wanted to talk about one example that, that should be in most people's mind recently, uh, and that was the, the attack last October uh, with the Dyne DNS uh, uh, DDoS um, attack. And so there's a lot to unpack there. And, and, and first of all, explain to us what a DDoS attack is. <laughs> Cloudflare, by the way, is one of the companies out there that is, that is, that is providing services that, that, that help to prevent these sort of things. So you are a perfect person to ask this question. Explain to the audience, what, what is a DDoS attack? Well, in some ways, it's super technical. In some ways, it's dead simple. It's just way too much traffic 
way too much internet traffic for your website or your app or your internet of things camera to cope with so if you can get a lot of machines together on the internet and we usually call that a botnet a collection of these bots and get them all to send requests like you know they, they ask for a particular web page from a particular website or they just send traffic to it packets across the internet um, you just get overwhelmed. I mean, it's like a road with everyone decides to drive down the main road around London. It's going to get full. And so what attackers do is they harness computers around the world. They do that by writing worms or viruses to infect them or they scan to find machines that are vulnerable. Take over that machine. In the old days, you know, viruses used to actually ruin machines, right? They used to delete stuff and it would be a big problem. You may have noticed that viruses have tended to be somewhat mundane. They don't tend to destroy machines they take them over and they actually use them because it's more valuable to use them for ddos attacks so all they do is they get a thousand machines a hundred thousand machines and attack people just by sending lots of traffic to them that's a ddos the ddos is the first d is distributed it means it comes from all over the world and dos is denial of service i.e your machine just doesn't work anymore thank you perfect and that's and that's what happened with the last october so there was a uh, there's a uh, botnet it actually has a name it's so big and it has a name it's called mirai uh, m-i-r-a-i i believe uh and hackers use this actually first they use it on brian krebs uh who's a security yep. research a security researcher and everybody thought that was bad they tried to bring down his service and then using the same botnet which is uh, a, a collection of internet of things devices these were dvrs and webcams and baby monitors and printers and things that were that were left uh, on the internet, exposed to the internet, and they were not secure, and so these hackers were able to take them over. And like you said, they they didn't cause anything bad to happen to those devices. What they used those for was uh, to create this massive army of of these computers to slam, uh, in, in, the, in the October case, this the Dyn DNS thing. Um, uh, talk to us a little bit about that and how, what the effects were, because this is actually something I would think that most people might remember, that, and, and, and this is the cause behind that. Well, yeah, so it's exactly as you describe, right? These these hackers, they built themselves a, a bot army. And in this case, instead of it being people's home computers or computers in offices, it was Internet of Things device because, after all, those are just computers. I mean, they're hidden inside a camera or a DVR or something, but it's a computer. And so they built this army and they directed it, uh, first of all, with a guy called Brian Krebs, who is a journalist who writes about cybercrime. And they knocked his website offline they even managed to make his service provider who was doing DDoS protection give up and stop servicing him because it was overwhelmingly large. Um, and then they, you know, there was a lull for a bit. And then they attacked a company called Dyn. And Dyn provides DNS service. And, it, you know, if you don't know what DNS is, it's a very simple thing. The Internet actually runs on numbers underneath or IP addresses. You may have seen numbers like that. But you almost never use those. You almost always type in you know, the name of a website like cloudflare.com. Well, something has to do with the translation between the name and the numbers, and that thing is called DNS. And it's pretty fundamental to the operation of the Internet. If you can mm -hmm. stop it working, then you have a big problem. And Dyn is a large company that provides DNS service, so lots of people use it. And by sending a DDoS to the servers that Dyn uses for this number-to-name translation, they managed to knock it offline, and that meant lots of other websites went offline. So Dyn is a website you've never visited because you don't need to, but... <laughs> They're fundamental for part of the operation of the internet for their customers. And so lots of popular websites disappeared from the internet because you couldn't do the name-to-number lookup. So if you typed right. in something like twitter.com and your web browser said, hey, internet, who is twitter.com? Give me the number. 
normally Dyne might have replied, and they couldn't because they were under attack. Excellent. That, that, that's a fantastic explanation there. That was really good. Um, two other samples I wanted to bring up and uh, that I thought that I think are interesting and I think also illustrative of, of some of the some of the issues we're dealing with. And one is Brickerbot. Another one is I'm going to get this name wrong. I'm sure it is Hajime. I I think it's maybe Japanese. So I know I'm going to butcher it, but it's spelled H A J I M E, um, and they're kind of flip sides of the same thing. And and I find them fascinating. And I think it's just a sign of things to come. Uh, do you are if you're familiar with those? Could, could you explain to mm. those what those what the, what those are what those are? Well, yeah. If you think that you know hackers can go around finding. Uh, devices like webcams and DVRs and baby monitors and smart toilet roll holders and things that connect to the internet and find vulnerabilities in it, then so can other people who might try and fix it. So what happened with Brickerbot was that somebody wrote exactly the same tool that a hacker would use to find vulnerable devices. They did that. And then instead of installing their own malware on it to use as part of a DDoS, they just killed the device they bricked it and that's a term that's sometimes used to mean that it just no longer works at all so it was kind of a cleanup operation i mean it was it was kind of killing the patient to cure the disease but it did kill a lot of devices that were uh, participating in in mirai and the other one which you mentioned which i think i have difficulty pronouncing too which i think is hajimi does similar sort of thing which is it's going after the mirai botnet as well um, trying to trying to close it down so that it, it can't be used. So you know these are these are these are curious things. There's a bit of a battle going on that um, people don't realize happens, and, th- and this actually happens all the time with viruses, where viruses will look on a machine and see if another virus is installed and try and uninstall it. But here we're seeing that happen with these botnets of IoT devices. Yeah, that that's just fascinating. All right. So obviously, at this point, the question is: is what can what can we do about this? What how do we've we've kind of talked about what these products are and 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 given people a heads up on uh, the kind of uh, issues surrounding these things. But as a regular consumer, what what am I to do about this? What kind of what can I do to either mitigate this or you know or, or prevent it? Well, a good thing to do is not to connect things to the internet with some sorry without some sort of firewall in the way. So. And that can often be as simple as if you have broadband at home, you'll have a broadband router and that router will normally provide some sort of protection from the internet. If you put things behind that and don't expose them to the internet, then it makes them much harder to find and use. So that that's a really simple thing. So I, I would never just connect something to the internet and say, hey, this is available everywhere. Now, unfortunately, people do that quite a lot because what they say is, I really want to be able to look at my baby monitor webcam from work and so I'll expose it to the internet. Um, what you don't realize is that the internet is a bit of a wild west. There are people actively looking for things, and they can do this automatically. It's not people sitting behind a keyboard. It's programs that go out searching for devices. And so uh, you need to make sure that if you do expose something to the internet, you expose the minimum. So maybe just the web interface for it, which would normally be on port 80 or port 443. And you absolutely change the default login and password. So one of the problems with the Mirai botnet was it was able to find things, and because people didn't change the password, use the default. So when you get a device, it has a password that's something like admin admin. In fact, I had a device I got yesterday, and it said, yes, the password for this thing is user user, and that gives you you know user part, username, user password. I immediately changed to something else, because that gives you a lot of protection. 
um, because the most common way to get in is just using the one that everyone's got printed on the box. <laughs> so if I'm buying an internet-connected light bulb or an internet-connected toaster or whatever the case may be, how do I <laughs> how do I find the the password on those devices? Well, usually there's some sort of management interface, right? They say oh, if you need to log in, you can you can log into the device by typing this in on your on your computer or your phone, and here's the username and password. And I would absolutely go in and change that to something else. Mo most things will allow you to do it. Now, there have been some really bad examples where there were secret default passwords that nobody <laughs> knew about so that the manufacturer could get in, and then you're in a whole other world of hurt. And the solution to that is partly technical, don't expose things to the internet if you can avoid it, and partly consumer pressure on manufacturers not to do that kind of stuff. Yeah, one of the uh, one of the things I often throw out, and this wasn't my idea, I got it from somewhere else, but uh, I thought it was pretty clever. It was to if when most home routers today come with a guest network, uh, which is to set up a network for for people visiting your house. So if you don't necessarily want to have them on your main network, and the, one of the reasons you would do that for guests is the same reason you want to do that for uh, Internet of Things devices is that if those if your friend or family member or whatever happens to bring in that laptop that's infected anything you kind of like a vampire brought them into your house and that gives them power over you right so if they're if they're on your internal network then all of a sudden now the, the, the things that were protecting your devices are no longer protecting them and they have sort of direct access uh behind the wall uh to some of your devices and so the, the advice that i've heard is put your internet of things devices on the guest network as well well, I think that's a very good piece of advice or, or some other network that, you know, is, is protected. The reason it's a good idea, if you look at what happened with the WannaCry ransomware virus, which happened very recently, the, one of the ways in which it operated was once it got inside a network, then it would start scanning for other machines in the network. And that what happened in Britain to the National Health Service was lots of machines got infected because it's often the case that people's security is based on the idea of they've got a really strong wall all around them. But inside, anything goes. Right? There's no sort of firewalls inside your house. And so if you can separate out you know, guest devices and your Internet of Things, then you probably save yourself a lot of hassle. Yeah. In fact, I heard, recently heard a security guy describe that as crunchy on the outside, squishy on the inside. <laughs> <laughs> that's right. That's pretty much it. I, I always likened it to a kind of background radiation. If you were to just plug something in the, into the Internet, you would be amazed at how many packets and requests you get when you've done absolutely nothing at all. And that's the scanners looking for vulnerabilities. Yeah, it, yeah. That, yes, that's that, that's crazy. I, I've once heard that back in the day, uh, a Windows XP machine put on the internet directly would be compromised within minutes, usually faster than you could download the updates that would patch the things that they were exploiting. Yes, so, <laughs> that is that is totally true. So we talked a little bit about manufacturers now. So let's let's shift let's shift the focus. What what should manufacturers be doing? Obviously, than spending more time on security than a lot of them have. What you know, what can they do to secure their devices now? What, what, what kind of things should they be adopting that they either aren't? Uh, and this kind of leads in, I think, a little bit to some, to a service you guys are providing or um, offering to provide. So tell us a little bit about what manufacturers can and should be doing and what kind of solutions are available that might protect us. Well, and there, there are a number of things they can do. For example, one thing they could do is get rid of default passwords. Um, I've seen many devices come with a unique password for each device. Hmm. Yes, that requires more effort on the manufacturing side but instantaneously that solves the problem of there being one password to operate a million devices second of all they need to actually think about the updates for those devices so they need to build in a mechanism because 
problems will be found. I mean, no software is perfect and problems will be found. And the solution is the device needs to be able to update. All these things are connected to the internet. They should be able to securely do some kind of update. And the third thing is really just think about secure coding practices. These have been around for years in the computer software industry. There's nothing exciting about those. They just need to do them. And that obviously there's a little bit of cost to actually making sure their code is as secure as possible. Right. It, is it possible? It, most of these devices are so cheap and they're meant to be so cheap. Uh, and they, it, you know, the way we have, you know, become cultured to buy our electronic products is the cheaper, the better. And someone makes, you know, there's this, there's this company that makes a $150 webcam, but this guy makes a webcam for 70 bucks. looks pretty much the same. Why wouldn't I do the $70 one? And, and I think what a lot, what's behind the scenes behind that, that we miss is that it's not, obviously it's not a hard and fast rule, but you have to kind of assume that the companies with a bigger name, maybe the bigger brand reputation that they need to protect, or maybe just honestly spend a little bit more money on the R and D have hopefully done their homework and potentially have some more security. Uh, do you, what do you, is that, <laughs> let me put it to you this way. What do we tell our listeners as consumers? How do we evaluate these products as, as, as you know, we, we're intelligent, but, but we don't know the technical ins and outs of these things. How, how can we possibly, you know, evaluate these things? At least currently, there's no consumer reports security listing on, on you know, on these things, some independent panel. How do I evaluate these products? Well, I, so I think that's what's going to happen is somebody like consumer reports, underwriters, laboratories, there's going to be some mark where people can say, yes, you know, some minimal standard has been done. I mean, if you think about electrical devices, we don't get electric shocks often. And that's because there are some standards. And I think the same thing is going to happen for Internet security. And it may end up requiring, you know, government actual regulation where we say, right, this is what we consider to be um, you know, the minimum standard and we'll test devices um, for that. So I think that's going to happen today. It's very, very hard. Um, there is somewhat of a connection between cheapness and insecurity, although it's not perfect. Mm -hmm. There are devices out there that are, are very cheap and are very, very secure. Um, what I would actually do is question for yourself whether you actually need something connected to the internet. Mm -hmm. Yes. And do you actually need to expose to the internet? And if you really don't, then don't do it. If you do, then you could perhaps use a VPN that comes into your house. So you connect through it through a VPN. That would be a very effective protection. Um, but I would stop and say, you know, I'm, I'm not, it's not clear that, you know, I actually need my baby monitor um, connected <laughs> to the internet. Yeah. And TVs are another big one. Cause it's so hard to find a dumb TV anymore. It, it was such a big feature for a long time that almost all the manufacturers like, Oh, well, that's the next feature, right? They're always looking for something to make you throw away your old television, buy a new one. And so let's hook it up to the internet. And I think that's actually true of a lot of products you're going to see today is that products that are stayed things that you've had in your house for 10 years working just fine, but they're not internet connected. I want, I want that app, you know, it's kind of thing. So I, I, we, I think we're going to see a wave of, you know, marketing against that. And, but for like TVs, and that's what I did with my TV. Cause there was a little bit of a weirdness with the LG TV. I think I wrote about this in the, in the, in my book is, is that the, the actual instruction manual for the TV said, Something to the effect, I'm paraphrasing, be careful what you say around the LG TV because we are listening. <laughs> so, you know, I just didn't plug it in. It, it had, you know, you either set up the Wi-Fi or you plug it in with an Ethernet cable. And I just, I just didn't. Mm -hmm. Well, I think Samsung also, I think it was Samsung we had in there, you know, terms and conditions. It was kind of like, don't have sensitive conversations near this television. It was like, <laughs> yes. wow. The other thing about smart TVs, which is that, so I, I have one um, and 
it's something I regret buying because what's happened over time, the television isn't very old. It's probably five or six years old. And the apps in it have been deprecated. So mm. half the smartness doesn't work anymore. So actually, you know, it would be better if I just had a display and I could plug in whatever yes. the latest thing is because, you know, Amazon Fire Sticks have come along and et cetera, et cetera. And so smart TVs are, I think, a bit of a mistake, to be honest, because most of the features are going to disappear. Funnily enough, I think my original television that I owned when I was a student, which is a very long time ago, still works. And the only reason I can't get a signal on it anymore is there's been a shift from analog to digital transmission. Mm -hmm. um, so, yes. But that took 30 years, whereas my Samsung Smart TV is going to be, half of it's going to be useless within five. Yeah, and that's an excellent point. Um, and that brings up another topic I wanted to talk about, and that is the obsolescence of some of these things. And it's so... Some of these companies come out with the best of intentions, and even if they have, with some of these devices, the capability to do upgrades at some point, either because the company goes under, or maybe the company gets bought, and the company that bought them changes their service agreements, or or I'm sure, and somewhere buried in the pages and pages of the uh, license agreement that you, you, you somehow agree to when you open the box, it says that we will only support this for you know X number of years. And at that point, they've, they've become unsupported. So that leads to kind of my final question. You touched on this as well. Do we, what role do our governments have in playing and protecting us here? Should, what software liability is, is, is non-existent for, for the most part, unlike, you know, if we, and I, I've used this example on the podcast before, but if you, on the show before, if you buy a car and there's something systemically wrong with that car that causes injuries, it's straightforward, at least in the United States, you, you know, you're going to get sued, yeah. but, but Microsoft and the, and the software companies, and the, if you look at a lot of the agreements, they're, they're very, you know, you're using this as is, we make no promises, mm -hmm. you know, all those kind of things. What, so talk to me a little bit about, you know, broader policy and government regulation, what, you know, what, what kind of things that we need to be thinking about going forward with this? Well, I go back to my electrical safety thing. I mean, if you buy a device, it has some minimum standard of electrical safety, um, it doesn't guarantee that it will not kill you. Right? There could something could go wrong with it, but there there is some minimum standard, and I think that's what we're going to need to do with Internet of Things devices, where there where there'll be a standard which says, yes, we've done secure coding, yes, we have an update mechanism, yes, we don't have ridiculous ports open to the internet, things like that, so that people can look at it and go, okay, this is a minimum standard, and how that they achieve that minimum standard it might be something in the device or it might be a service i mean cloudflare has a service for internet of things devices um, that helps to protect them but there'll be some mechanism for providing kind of a baseline level of security which frankly for many iot devices today is just completely missing and let's talk about that so orbit i believe is the name of the uh, the the offering that you guys have tell us a little bit uh, and i'm it's highly technical i've looked at it I, but from a layman's perspective, what is Orbit, and what and what kind of a, and tell us why this is a potential solution uh, for this problem. So the idea of Orbit is that um, rather than having things connected directly to the internet and just kind of exposed, what the device that you get in your home would connect to Cloudflare's network, and Cloudflare, because we're very good at firewalling and DDoS protection, would protect that connection and if you needed to get to your baby monitor you would actually be coming to cloudflare first we would look to see if you're a genuine um you know visitor uh, and if you're not a genuine visitor we would block you 
So that's really the idea is the idea is to give you a secure connection between the device and the internet. And we do that using something called uh, mutual client authentication and TLS, which is an encryption system. And that allows us to secure that connection. And then, then it's not exposed naked, if you like, to the internet. It's protected by a service like Cloudflare. And what do what do the manufacturers have to do to participate in this? Do they? Because I, I believe Orbit also has a function for uh, facilitating uh, software updates as well. So I imagine this has to that, that there's some some amount of things that the manufacturer will have to do to participate in that. Is that true? Right. So I mean, there's a um, we have a service where we do this for uh, a lot of people who need to do software updates. So that could be for devices or for antivirus updates or, for, or ordinary software updates where you've got to deliver a lot of data around the world. So we provide that service. And then it's really a question of the individual device uh, manufacturer just getting the, up, uh, the update from us. And so they'll have to build that functionality into their device. It's not rocket science, um, but you know it, it's something where we can help do it. The, one of the reasons people have a hard time with this is it's expensive. And the reason it's expensive is because if you have a million cameras that all need to download a big update, that's a lot of bandwidth that someone's got to pay right. for. And that's really one of the things that Cloudflare does is provide bandwidth for this kind of thing extremely cheaply. And I know you offer a free service for, for uh, either small business owners or people that run their own websites. Tell us a little bit about that and why somebody might want to look at it, uh, that kind of a service. Yeah, that's, I mean, that's mostly aimed at um, websites or APIs for applications, the, the, the back end of apps that we use today, um, any sort of thing that's on the web. What that does is it provides a base level of, of caching of data that makes a website much faster. And it provides a base level of protection. So we have some firewalling and some DDoS pr prevention in there. And it, yeah, as you say, it's, it's really aimed at someone who's got a personal website, a small business, or, or is just you know testing the waters with internet security and wants to try something out. And so they can do it on Cloudflare for free. And maybe later they upgrade to something that's uh, one of our paid plans because they get a higher level of service or a higher level of protection. But it's very good. I mean, it, it's free. There's no bandwidth cost. That's, that's the, really the big thing is most of these services charge by by the byte, and we don't. It's just a, a flat free, and, and, and at the bottom level, it's completely free. Fantastic. Well, John, it's been great talking to you. Uh, we had some great information in there. So as we wrap up, is there is there anything you want to summarize, any last points you'd like to make to the audience, any any top five, top five tips uh, that you'd like to share with us before we go? Well, you know, people always ask me about, you know, what should I do to protect myself? And I think it's, it's always very easy to imagine the nightmare scenarios around cybersecurity. And I think people always miss the simple things. So mm. honestly, good passwords. And yeah. not just good passwords, but different passwords on, on every website. And the reason different passwords matter the most is that Lots and lots of things get hacked. If you use the same password multiple places, you're going to get hacked multiple places because mm. it only takes one of them to get broken into for others to. So before you start anything, I'd make sure your passwords are good. That way you'll protect yourself online. After that, some sort of firewall at home. The simplest one is probably your broadband device, right. whatever, however you, your ADSL modem or whatever. Just don't open all the ports up onto it and expose yourself naked to the internet. And then those two things will help you a lot. After that, you can get into more sophisticated things. But I would start with good passwords and a firewall. Excellent. Well, John, thank you very much for your time today. And thanks for your wonderful advice. And it was just great talking to you.
And there you have it, folks, a really nice discussion on the Internet of Things, or IoT. If you haven't heard the term already, you'll be hearing it a lot more, and you're already participating in it more than likely without even knowing about it. We've got all these smart devices at our houses, uh, smart TVs, smart thermostats, you name it. Everything's getting quote-unquote smart, which means it's connected to the Internet, which makes it vulnerable potentially to uh, security problems. So great discussion there with John Graham coming. Thank you again for coming on. And uh, we need to really start paying attention to the kind of things that we're hooking up to the Internet and what we're allowing them to do. Now, uh, if you're a geek like me and you love to travel, uh, John Graham Cumming is also the author of a book called The Geek Atlas. It was actually on my Amazon to buy list, and I've got to get that now for sure. Uh, It talks about 128 different places around the planet where uh, geeks and science all come together in an interesting location. Uh, give you some great ideas for travel tips and me. You know, maybe you're maybe you're not going to go there uh, just for that purpose, but maybe you'll be close by and you can look it up and say, oh, we're, we're right over by where CERN is or something like that. And you might want to be able to check those kind of things out. So it's a great little resource. I definitely plan to pick up that myself. Got a link to that in the show notes as well if you're interested. So check that out. And one more little uh, public service announcement. The FCC's new guidelines on net neutrality, which basically is gutting net neutrality, uh, which is a bad thing. We want the internet to be a level playing field so that when the next YouTube or Netflix comes along, they will have a, a fair opportunity to compete with uh, the, exist- the existing Netflix and YouTube, which, by the way, benefited from uh, this, this same policy a long time ago. Even though it wasn't set in stone, uh, they, they, they benefited from the fact that anybody could come out and with these services and, and compete. And now that it's become so commercialized, a lot of these companies are really using their their dominance and their 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 pocketbooks uh, and their influence to keep competition at bay, and we we should not be having that. So net neutrality is a good thing, folks. And you really want to go out and make yourself heard on this. Uh, the FCC's got a website for this. Uh, you might recall that I talked about John Oliver's website, which is Go FCC Yourself, um, and that that's one way to go. Uh, but you also might look at the EFF, uh, the EFF webpage. They've got another one called, uh, dearfcc.org. That's D E A R F C C.org. Uh, if you go there, they will also have a nice little web form there that will help you send your, your comments off to the FCC, the government to let them know what you think about this. Either way, get involved, go out there, express your opinion uh, and let them know what you think. Those are two possible ways to do it. I've got a link to that in the show notes as well on the website. So check that out. And that's going to do it for uh, Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons this week. Thank you again for tuning in. we got some more great shows coming up and some other great interviews. Uh, we'll be talking at some point uh, about uh, vehicle-to-vehicle communications, uh, where cars are actually talking to each other and the security nightmares that might ensue from that. Uh, we'll be talking about password managers and all sorts of other great stuff in the future. So come on back. We've got some great more info from you. I'm going to start, think I'm going to start instituting a tip of the week, uh, kind of the end, sort of kind of, combining the the mailbag questions with just uh, some some topics that I want to make sure you guys are aware of and uh, come, so come on back we'll st- we'll start that next week in the meantime uh, everybody stay safe and don't get caught with your drawbridge down see you next week. Bye.